our scripture reading, I invite you to turn to the book of Psalms. I know we are studying through uh, Acts, but Psalm 78, I would really like to read the whole psalm. Uh, I might just do it. 72 verses. I keep wanting to figure out where I want to come in and where I want to cut off. And uh, there's very little that I want to do with that with. So I may stop earlier, but Psalm 78 will begin in verse 1. I'll be reading out the New King James Version. A little bit lengthier of a scripture reading than we might be accustomed to. But I, it's an important uh, song, believe it or not. A psalm. A contemplation of Asa. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He has done. For He has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. It may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright and whose spirit was not faithful to God. The children of Ephraim, being armed and carrying bows, turned back in the day of battle. They did not keep the covenant of God. They refused to walk in His law and forgot His works and his wonders that he had shown them. Marvelous things he did in the sight of their fathers, in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through, and he made the water stand up like a heap. In the daytime also he led them with a cloud, and all the night with a light of fire. He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink in abundance like the depths. He also brought streams out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. But they sinned even more against him. By rebelling against the Most High in the wilderness, and they tested God in their heart by asking for the food of their fancy. Yes, they spoke against God. They said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck the rock so that the waters gushed out. And the streams overflowed. Can he give bread also? Can he provide meat for his people? Therefore God heard this and was furious. So fire was kindled against Jacob. And anger also came up against Israel. Because they did not believe in God. And did not trust in his salvation. Yet he had commanded the clouds above. And opened the doors of heaven had rained down manna on them to eat and given them of the bread of heaven. Men ate angels' food. He sent them food to the full. He caused an east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he brought in the south wind. He also rained meat on them like the dust, feathered fowl like the sand of the seas, and he let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings. So they ate And were well filled, for he gave them their own desire. They were not deprived of their craving, 
But while their food was still in their mouths, the wrath of God came against them and slew the stoutest of them and struck down the choice men of Israel. In spite of this, they still sinned and did not believe in his wondrous works. Therefore, their days he consumed in futility and their years in fear. When he slew them, then they sought him. And they returned and sought earnestly for God. Then they remembered that God was their rock and the Most High God their Redeemer. Nevertheless, they flattered him with their mouth and they lied to him with their tongue. For their heart was not steadfast with him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. But he, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. Yes, many a time he turned his anger away and did not stir up all his wrath. For he remembered that they were but flesh, a breath that passes away and does not come again. How often they provoked him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Yes, again and again they tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power the day when he redeemed them from the enemy, when he worked his signs in Egypt and his wonders in the field of Zoan, turned their rivers into blood and their streams that they could not drink. He sent swarms of flies among them which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He also gave their crops to the caterpillar and their labor to the locusts. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamore trees with frost. He also gave up their cattle to the hail and their flocks to fiery lightning. He cast on them the fierceness of his anger, wrath, indignation, and trouble by sending angels of destruction among them. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare their soul from death, but gave their life over to the plague and destroyed all the firstborn in Egypt, the first of their strength in the tents of Ham. But he made his own people go forth like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them on safe, he led them on safely so that they did not fear. But the sea overwhelmed their enemies. And he brought them to his holy border, this mountain which his right hand had acquired. He also drove out the nations before them, allotted them an inheritance by survey, and made the tribes of Israel dwell in their tents. Yet they tested and provoked the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies, but turned back and acted unfaithfully like their fathers. They were turned aside like a deceitful bow. They provoked him to anger with their high places and moved him to jealousy with their carved images. When God heard this, he was furious and greatly abhorred Israel. So that he forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent he had placed among men, and delivered his strength into captivity and his glory into the enemy's hand. He also gave his people over to the sword and was furious with his inheritance. The fire consumed their young men and their maidens were not given in marriage. Their priests fell by the sword and their widows made no lamentation. Then the Lord awoke us from sleep like a mighty man who shouts because of wine. He beat back his enemies. He put them in a perpetual reproach. Moreover, he rejected the tent of Joseph and did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. And he built his sanctuary like the heights like the earth which he has established forever. He also chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the ewes that had, that had young, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. Let's go, Lord, in prayer together this morning.
This morning we enter into a fairly small portion of Scripture in Acts chapter 5. Uh, we're only going to handle a few verses, and really you might just want to fly by these verses as kind of a summary of an update of how the church is doing, and let's get on to something exciting happening. Um, but we're going to take a little time here, and we're going to this time we're going to take is going to drive us into the Old Testament uh, to see that much of what was going on in the church is very similar to some of the things we saw going on in Israel. And we're going to pick that up a little bit as we go along. Uh, we often think that the early church had no problems and everything they did was perfect and they did everything just right. Uh, and as I said earlier on in our study, that we find that the early church had some mistakes and they had problems. And isn't that good that even if you have the apostles as your pastors that you still got problems in the church? You know why? It's because of all you people. No, it's not. It's the pastors sometimes too. Um, but we find that even in the best environment when we are just weeks from the event of the cross and the event of the resurrection and the, and the Pentecost, the event of the coming of the Holy Spirit, we are, there are struggles, and we saw one last week when you have some people come into your church and wanting to have a pretense of spirituality and lie and say, here, we're going to give this big gift to the church, and uh, the apostles didn't have any of it. Um, keep your pretense. We don't need it. Um, that's, we don't need your money. We don't have a claim on it. We, it was yours, you have control of it, uh, you're not lying to us, you're lying to God, and we'll let God take care of you, and God, of course, answered pretty quick, didn't he? Boom, they're gone. Uh, Ananias drops dead, Sapphira, his wife, comes in a little bit later, a few hours later, and affirms the same lie, and receives the same punishment. And uh, the question is, how Satan filled your heart? So even early on, the church had some issues. They had some problem people um, and things that had to be dealt with. And we finished off last week by talking about the necessity of fearfulness in our worship. And we're going to pick up a little bit on that coming into the passage of chapter 5, verses 12 through 16, and see what was the result of the power of God being at work, not only in the positive ways, that we think of that it's going to be described here of people getting healed uh, and some very wondrous things done, not only from opposition by the world against us, where we have the religious leaders of Israel opposing the apostles. Later on, of course, it's going to expand into some other areas. Uh, not only that kind of opposition, the opposition that Christ had, uh, but also... Um, the power of God being at work within problems as they rise up in the church. And by the time we get to chapter 6, we're going to have another problem in the church that's going to be addressed. And this one, we might say, well, that's less powerful than what happened to Ananias and Sapphira, and I would contend that you were wrong. Um, we think that God's striking people dead. Now, if that happened today, boy, we would really have a church on fire. Well, I would contend with you that not only is that true, but if we would address issues in the manner uh, what we're going to see in chapter 6, similarly, God would be glorified. But we're going to look, um, at the end of, of our passage last week, we, we focus on the church. That the, a great fear came upon the church. And we're going to develop that a little bit more this morning, but we're also going to look at the influence in others and the necessity that our worship be serious. 
Because God takes it serious. That it is not a lie. That when we sing how great God is, that we really believe that and we aren't being hypocritical in our voice. Nor that we sing it with less than all of our voice as kind of like Anna Sapphira, they give less than all. And yet claiming it's all. That God is listening, that God is attentive, that God is is participating in our worship. And as such, there should be a certain fearfulness, a, a preparation that we have in our hearts and our lives as we come into this place, a certain level of reverence that we recognize that, that this is a time when we are going to be looking to God's word and that some serious things are going to happen. We have been inundated with a philosophy from our society that if it's not entertaining that it's not valuable to me. That only entertainment can captivate my attention. And there's grave danger there if that's our attitude that we approach God with. Entertain me or I'm going to go elsewhere. (laughs) Can you imagine someone saying that to God? Keep me entertained or I'm going to go after Baal. They've got some cool stuff going on over there in that Baal temple. They've got an Ashtoreth pole. They do blood sacrifices. If you don't think that's cool, well, you haven't watched very many movies, I guess. Because the world thinks that's cool. We have come and made inter- tried to make it acceptable. We've tried to make worship entertaining. We have tried to make worship everything except for what's supposed to be. Which is a time of humbling ourselves before our God in thanksgiving, in rejoicing, in service, and attentively coming to him, asking him, what do you want? What do you want? Well, he wants our praises, but he wants it in an honest fashion. He wants our best, and he wants it all the time. He wants our lives. He wants our tensions. He wants our loyalty. He wants the righteousness of Christ to be at work in us and evident in our decisions and thinking and speech and countenance, our our very appearance. These are all aspects of our worship and when we gather together as a church and enter into a corporate worship time, um, we just multiply that those facets of worship and the necessity of a sobriety about our worship that, that uh, can be called great fear. But these people, when they gather, they take it serious. The Bible says this, they take that serious. As it ought to. And we're going to look at generations of Israel that didn't take their worship serious. And the church wasn't going to get caught in that just yet. We know by the time we get to the book of Revelation that some of the churches had gotten caught. In the same traps that Israel had gotten caught in. And we see those traps around us today. And and one of my pastor friends put on Facebook a quote um, from, (laughs) get this, uh, more than just a generation ago. Uh, that the early church was noted for two things. Number one, poverty. And number two, power. Modern church is known for two things. Number one, wealth. Number two, weakness. And so we fall into the same traps that Israel did in the land, that, that uh, Israel did in the midst of bounty that God was directly providing 
um, they fell into the trap of complaining. We're going to see that. They fell into the trap of trusting in panel housing and giving God lip service uh, and wanting to serve multiple gods at once. And God wasn't pleased and his wrath came upon them at various levels. And we want to guard against that. And the church was here interested in guarding against that. We're going to see the results of that. Before we do, let's go, Lord, in prayer very quickly. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. And we pray you might uh, work in this time in what is said, how it is received, that it might be your word of truth, uh, that it might be uh, directed by your spirit, that it might lead us to you. And that we might walk as you would have us walk as a result of our time together this morning. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, chapter 5, verse 12, having summarized the effect of this direct hand of discipline by God upon Ananias Sapphira as great fear coming upon the church. So we've heard what's uh, going on there. The last half of the verse says, and on all who heard these things. So outside of the church, there were people hearing about what happened within the church and that still happens today, too, I'm pretty sure. Word still gets out. But let's see what it, what it was all about. And uh, remember that the disciples had prayed at one of their aspects of worship we had looked at earlier. Um, not only their giving, we saw last week, but before that, their prayers, their praying, and their time of being taught. We also looked at their evangelism. All these are facets of worship that Luke is trying to bring out. And let's see. Where else it goes? Verse 12 says, And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. And our focus and attention generally has always been on the healing ministry of the apostolic generation. And focus, of course, is on the apostles. We have no real evidence that others within the church were engaged in this ministry of healing, that this was a special endowment by God upon them. Uh, and we see the extent of it, that in the people's minds, that even if the Peter's shadow could fall on them, that it would be of some assistance. We're not really told by Luke whether that was effectual or not, but that's what the people did, thought. Um, we also find out that the ministry of healing didn't leave the temple area. That it was the surrounding communities as they heard about what was going on in the temple area, brought the sick to Jerusalem. They were outlying Jerusalem communities. Uh, we don't find the apostles going out to them, as Christ would have sent them out two by two during his uh, ministry. On two occasions, he sent them out to minister in all the surrounding villages. But on this occasion, they are staying right there. They are active and they're engaged in ministry. And uh, the word hasn't really gotten... The church hasn't really figured out the need to get out of town. Um, they haven't really followed through completely yet on God's instruction. You start in Jerusalem, you get to Judea, you go to Samaria and the other most parts of the world. 
Um, they're pretty much just here in Jerusalem. We're not sure exactly how far along we are. It doesn't appear that we have even passed a, a one-year mark or six months from Pentecost. And so we have the outlying areas having to bring their sick into Jerusalem. And uh, we can focus on that and try to replicate that ministry, uh, but that's really n- not what I want to focus on. We can discuss that. We're going to discuss that a little bit later on of the apostolic gifts as we see Paul moving away from them as they caused more problems later on than they solved. And I would contend that even at this early stage that they were also problematic. That is, that you're going to have people attracted to your ministry for what they can get out of it, of this world, rather than getting right with God. And we're going to see some of that evidence in Luke's very strange language that he uses in these verses before us. And I would contend that the reason he uses this strange language is to begin to differentiate between those who were generally understood to be the church or disciples of Jesus, followers of the apostolic work, um, versus those who were genuine believers and those who were Jewish and somewhat respectful of them and those that were the enemies. And I'm going to describe this as a mixed multitude. The reason is because that's the description of the group that came out of the Exodus. Turn with me to Exodus, if you will, very quickly. Chapter 12. And this is after all the plagues uh, were accomplished. In fact, it is right after the last plague. We come to Exodus chapter 12. And uh, the tenth plague is there in verses 29 and 30. Uh, we, of course, have uh, Moses and Aaron uh, called in by Pharaoh and says, get out of here. Um, and uh, so they rise, go out from here. Um, in verse 31, both you, the children of Israel, go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks, your herds, be gone, and bless me also. Um, kind of interesting phrase. The Egyptians then uh, put all their wealth on them, and they go out, and we come to um, verse 38. And we often think, well, these are all just Israelites, but we find out very quickly that it really wasn't. It says, a mixed multitude went up with them also, and flocks and herds, a great deal of livestock. And so in addition to all the Israelites coming up out of Egypt, um, there was also a mixed multitude. So you have Israel themselves which was a pretty good number. And then you have not just a mixed handful of people, but a mixed multitude of people of, we would suppose, Egyptians or, or Egyptian sojourners, those who had come in from other regions and, and had taken up residence in Egypt. And so we have this mixed multitude that is going up out of Egypt. They're going to cross the Red Sea with Moses. They're going to go to the Mount Sinai. They're going to hear the voice of God. They're going to eat manna. They're going to drink water from the rock, uh, the split rock of Horeb. They're going to participate in all these wonders. They've already seen all ten. All they had to see was nine. Nine plagues, that's enough. And the indication is that these families put blood on their doorposts, even if they weren't Israelites. Because they came to believe. They came 
to believe in the powerful working of this God of Israel. But the Bible describes them as mixed multitude. And this is not referring just to racial mixing that we would might talk about, but I believe it's, believe, it's, it's a mixture of faith and what they're believing in and how far they're going to follow after God. And we're going to find some of these individuals um, fully following after God and being incorporated into the nation of Israel. And, and uh, we're going to see others added to them as we get into Joshua. And we're going to see uh, Rahab and others that are going to press their way into the people of God by great acts of faith. But among this mixed multitude are those who are simply, you know, responding to what they're seeing. Now, I'm convinced in the early church that there was a similar mixture that simply are responding to the great exercise of God's power on behalf of his people and their reaction to that is to say, what am I, you know, they're smart enough not to fight it like Pharaoh all the way through um, and not to be resistant to it like most of the Egyptians. So they, 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 they are brought to some level of belief that they're going to follow Israel right out of Egypt and uh, incorporate themselves. And of course, Moses is going to uh, end up marrying one of these down the road a piece. Um, but this mixed multitude comes out. Let's look at a little bit of what transpires down the road a little piece. Um, let's go to Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11 uh, begins describing the process by which Israel began to say, oh, back in Egypt we had food and water and everything was wonderful. Well, it wasn't, but how we romanticize the past we're all guilty of that, right? Um, you know, my wife could very easily romanticize Ohio um, that I drug her away from those green fields and that moisture and Lake Erie, and it, you know, you plant anything, it grows. You don't have, have to water it. Uh, we could very easily romanticize that, uh, but the fact is, there's bugs, there's winter, and you have to mow twice a week. Okay, so. There is no Eden on earth anymore, all right, folks? And yesterday I came in out of the wind. I said, sometimes I hate New Mexico. And it's a reminder that this is no place to romanticize either. Okay, because every place has its negatives. Um, except for that place when Christ comes. But the people start complaining. It says in verse 1 of chapter 11, When the people complained, it displeased the Lord, for the Lord heard it. And his anger was aroused, so the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some in the outskirts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire was quenched. So that's the, 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 brev, the brief description. And we're going to really see how, why it all happened uh, and, and happens again and again. But let's go down to verse 4. It says, Now the mixed multitude who are among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up and there's nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. What were they complaining about? God's provision 
does not have enough variety to it. You see, church is supposed to be a variety show, right? Our worship, without variety to it. You know, it doesn't keep us occupied, and it's, you know, it's so much better out there somewhere. We forget the bondage that is out there. We forget all of that, and we focus in on the, and even romanticize what it was. But it says that the, that God is going to break out against specifically the mixed multitude who yielded to their cravings. Well, we're not told immediately what that is. Later on in the chapter, we are told. Remember, the Hebrew authors aren't that concerned about chronology. So he went up to verse 31 where um, God is going to provide. And we read this in Psalm 78, uh, re- recapped there. It says, Now a wind went out from the Lord, and it brought quail from the sea and left them fluttering near the camp, about a day's journey on this side and about a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp and about two cubits above the surface of the ground. All these fluttering quail right here, you don't even have to bend over to pick them up. They're not flying above your head. They're two cubits off the ground. All right, let's see, two cubits. Uh, right here. This is where they're at. They're fluttering. It's like they can't really fly and they can't drop. They're just fluttering. You can go a mile that way and a mile that way, and the place is covered with quail. Now, these aren't people who are hungry. Please remember that. What have they been eating? Manna. They've had manna. So when it says they're intense craving, it is not out of hunger that they're eating. These are not people that have been starved for a month. These are simply people who have been fed by, the psalmist calls it, the food of angels, which has always been sufficient. It is very sustaining to life, and it was it completed all their nutritional needs. What it wasn't meeting was their desire to eat flesh. The intense craving described here in verse 4 by the mixed multitude was met, they wanted meat. They wanted to sink their teeth into a piece of meat. And God made provision. So therefore, if God provides for it, it must mean we really need it. Was it that men needed it? The psalmist has a very different view of that. It says the manna would have been sufficient, but he remembers that you're just made out of flesh. And in his compassion, he's going to provide more than you need. Kind of sounds like the early church. No one had need because people, God's provision was sufficient. It says in verse 32, the ground, the people stayed up all that day, all night, and all the next day and gathered quail. He who gathered the least gathered ten homers. That doesn't mean anything to you much. It's a lot. And they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. So they're just going around and Grab another one and put them and start drying them out, preparing them, cleaning them. In verse 33 it says, But while the meat was still between their teeth before it was chewed, the wrath of God was aroused against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a great plague. But what was it? Well, we were told the mixed multitude ate the flesh without cooking it. Remember, they weren't hungry. 
It was just their own cravings. Their own desires. And so while they've got the meat still in their mouth, God says, oh, you know, you take my provision and you can't even take the time to prepare it properly, to be thankful to me. And it's not because you're hungry. It's because you have insatiable appetite for the flesh. And this is the mixedness. That here we are following God. I mean, he's done these great things in the past. He's, he, I'm eating of a manna every day. And yet we find that the anger, the wrath of God is going to break out against these people. And in fact, we find the psalmist describing them. Uh, let's go back there to Psalm 78 very quickly to see how he describes them. Because it's a, it's a harsh statement. And uh, he describes them with reference to this exact event. Uh, verse 21 says, Therefore the Lord heard this and was furious. So a fire was kindled against Jacob. Anger also came up against Israel. Um, because they did not believe in God and did not trust in His salvation. So their complaining was a result of unbelief that God is good. Even while I'm eating the manna that God provided me this morning on the ground. I didn't cultivate. I didn't weed. I didn't water. I didn't plant. It's there on the ground. I go out and pick it up and it's there every day no matter where I go. There's enough for the whole day. And on Fridays, there's enough for two days. So on Saturday, I get to take the day off. I don't even have to walk out my tent and pick it up. I just have to reach over to the pot and eat it. This is what they were complaining about. And it says that the, the, the condemnation is that they didn't believe in God. They didn't trust in His salvation. Yet, He's going to bless them further. In the midst of that, it says in verse, if we jump down, it just reiterates the whole event. Jumps down to verse 31. The wrath of God came against them and slew the stoutest of them, struck down the choice men of Israel. In spite, and by this point, by the way, by the time of David, Mixed multitude is now part of Israel. Okay? So, in spite of this, they still sinned and did not believe in his wondrous works. Therefore, their days he consumed in futility and their years in fear. They didn't believe. They believed sufficiently in the working of God among the plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea. They believed that God would hold those waters that he heaped up on either side, and they walked across. They saw their enemies drowned. They, they drank water from the rock. They picked up manna, angels' food every morning, uh, and they participated in all these good things of God, and yet their flesh craved. And out of that craving, that desire for more and more and variety and, and the spice, because it's the spice of life, you know, um, they were sinned against God. Their, their claim was, God, you're not good. This isn't enough. We want more. And God gives them more. And do they serve him with it? Do they, do they glorify him with it? No. And it incites him to anger. And this is the description that we have in the Old Testament of a mixed multitude. Now we're going to come to Acts. That's the background 
backdrop that I'm going to draw from. And Luke begins to describe for us that the, this, there's a fearfulness within the church. Uh, uh, this is not just a respectful reverence, but there is some fear. There is some trembling about what's going on. The church had prayed for signs and wonders, and those signs and wonders God is going to produce among them. And so we have this tension going on in this passage. We have signs and wonders going on, and we still have today people saying, well, if God would do this, if God would do that, if God would do that, then I would believe in him. And my contention with you is that, no, you wouldn't, not sufficiently. Because if all you believe in are the signs and the wonders, you're going to be like the mixed multitude. And as soon as the variety or the memory or the benefit from that begins to wear off, you're going to complain against God, sin against God, and not believe in God. That is the end result. When our faith is built around signs and wonders. What the disciples were seeking to build the church around was the teaching of God's word. Remember that. All the way back to the first evangelism message, it was, um, here's Christ, here's Christ, here's Christ. Well, the message of Christ. Yeah, I've heard that message. I know the story, you know, Christmas, Easter, got it all. Um, and we get kind of bored with that. I want something more substantial. And boy, the pressure's on preachers to present something more entertaining, uh, more more uh, interesting uh, than Christ. And preachers seem to line up being willing to try to offer that uh, with sensational messages and with multimedia and all the benefits of that. Or all the disabling of that. They feed that craving that's of the flesh in man. And we need to recognize what it is. It's the craving of our flesh to see this and to see this. But then, so that's the one side, and we say, boy, if that would just happen today, if that's the power you're talking about, Pastor, then I want that power in our church, and then we can attract everybody in here. And and that's essentially what, what set off the Pentecostal movement within our nation was this offer. That here you're going to get Pentecostal power. You're going to get that kind of, of effect that that those things speaking in tongues and hearing and and all the experiential facets that they have that they have attributed there in the apostolic age but there's a tension against that while that's going on um there's also um if you don't follow god with all your heart mind soul and strength and you don't worship him in the spirit of truthfulness you're going to be struck dead by him Uh, okay. So now we're going to find out what you really believe. You want all that benefit, are you ready to take on this responsibility? <laughs> now we begin to understand Luke's description of the church. And there's been a lot of discussion among theologians about who he's referencing as we go through this. And I don't know that it matters extensively, but let's look at it. It says, first of all, uh, many signs of one is done among the people. And that is the people in general. It says that they were 
all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And that is certainly is probably a reference that they, uh, which is a new sentence, is referencing uh, the church, that they were with one accord in Solomon's porch. And then verse 13 says, none of the rest dared join them. And the question is, who are the rest and who are the them? Is the them the people? Is the them the ones meeting in one accord in Solomon's portico? The church? And who are the rest? Is it the rest of the believers? Is it the rest of the recipients of the, of the, of the uh, miracles? Is it the rest of the city? Is it the, some people contend the rest are referring to the religious leaders, but they're obviously kind of absent until a little bit later on. Uh, but it says the rest, none of the rest dared join them. But the people... The general population of Jerusalem esteemed them highly. They were very well respected in their town. And then we have, verse 14, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Wait a minute, I thought nobody wanted to join them anymore. And then we get to the next verse that says, well, multitudes were getting saved. Multitudes were believers. And but the sentence isn't over, by the way. So look, look at verse 14 again. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets, laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also, a multitude, here's another multitude, gathered from the surrounding cities. We're not told much about them. They're coming in for the healing. We know that. And for the removal of spirits. So we have this mixture of peoples, and we're told that, that here were the one accord. Here's the core. Here's your church. Last count, 5,000 men. Happy Father's Day. Last count, 5,000 men. And by the way, I read all of Psalm 78. It wasn't part of my text work for the message, but because the early verses were all about fathers, better tell your children this stuff. I included it in my reading. And uh, let that just be your Father's Day exhortation. Make sure your kids know this stuff. That multitude back there saw and participated in and were the benefactors on a daily basis of God's direct provision. They believed sufficiently to get out of Egypt. They believed sufficiently to be numbered among Israel. They believed sufficiently, and yet God's wrath ultimately was raised up against them, and they did not believe in the salvation of God. They believed in His power, but not in its application to their heart beyond the physical. And so, well, I mean, it doesn't take a dummy to realize that Moses raises his staff and things happen. Moses raises his staff and that thing stops happening. And Moses raises his staff and another bad thing happens. And then he calls it off and, and it doesn't take a genius to figure out, this guy, Moses, might have something going. This God, he's serving. I think I'm going to stick with them. But there's a difference between believing on that level and Trusting in God's salvation. 
that this mixed multitude came out believing, yes, there's a God. It's the God of Moses, God of Israel, Jehovah. We know his name because Moses brought it to us, Yahweh, whatever it is, Jehovah, Yahweh, whatever it is. We don't know how it's pronounced anymore. Silly that we don't, but we don't. But God differentiates that kind of belief from salvation belief. He says they sinned against him, not only in just complaining about the lack of variety, but they didn't really trust in him. And they come to him almost with an attitude, what have you done for me lately, and not recognize what salvation from the Lord entails because they never really possessed it. And I'm convinced that Luke's description of the church here is to describe a similar event. We're going to encounter it a couple more times. We're going to have to ask the question, is this person a Christian? Is Simon the sorcerer, the ex-sorcerer, is he a Christian? We're going to have to ask that question because of the, of the doubt that's placed upon by Peter's words to him. We're going to engage those kinds of things because that was going on even in the early years of the church, in the early days of the church. And so Luke here is trying to show this tension that's in the church, that, that there's a core that genuinely believed, and, and multitudes are being added to that. More people were believing, but the fact is, is that they didn't necessarily join with them. They believed, and there was, and it's kind of interesting where God broke, where God's wrath his fire broke out in Israel back there in Numbers. It was on the fringe. The fringe of the camp was being consumed by fire from God. This fringe was where the problems were, apparently, of the complaining and of the, of the uh, eating to satisfy one's fleshly appetites uh, with no regard for God's ordinances. And so... Um, we have this core that met with one accord and, and they met daily and they were invested in prayer and in communion and in the teaching of the word and, and they were the, the one accord ones. They were the believers. They were the, 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 I'm convinced, the bride of Christ, the church, the body. And there were others that also believed, they believed the 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 signs and the wonders they believed, but they didn't join the core. They didn't give themselves to the Lord. They didn't add themselves to the Lord. Multitudes would over the weeks and months, but there were some who, who well, we're excited about what's going on here, and we're thrilled to be able to participate with you in it. Um, but that thing with the Ananias Sapphira, I'm not sure that uh, I'm completely with that. You know, if it was all those kinds of healing wonders, but when it's judgment wonders, uh, I'm not sure I'm all for that. I'll take forgiveness from God, but I will not take accountability to God. And this is essentially what Galatians and Hebrews and James all address. Is this really a faith of salvation? 
that you want the signs and wonders, you want the benefits with none of the accountability, with none of, you don't recognize that you are going from being a slave to sin to being a servant of God. And there are demands being made of you in that respect. And so there are those who believe the signs of wonders, they, uh, and by the way, some of the Sanhedrin, remember, they're going to say, well, we can't. I mean, the guy is standing there. How can we say he didn't get healed? There he is. We all have known him all his life. But they still didn't believe in the God who healed him. And so I'm not really ready to relegate the rest in verse 13 to unbelievers. I'm considering none of the rest are those who participate in signs and wonders, yet once the sign and wonder included an accountability before God that you could drop dead for false worship in this church, that that's among the signs of God, oh, well, um, I'm not sure I want to join the church. I'll just come and watch the healing services. But I don't need to be a member, right? I don't need to be placed myself under that, those accountability rules like Anna Sapphira. So I want all the benefit, but I want to avoid all the accountability. And let me tell you something. That spirit is alive and well today. And it's not only with regard to church members. That's not really what I'm talking about, folks. What I'm really talking about is real church membership. Being a member of the body of Christ, of your salvation. Because if that is the spirit towards the local church that you have in your heart, then I would contend with you it's also the spirit you have towards God that I'll believe in your good stuff, but I don't want to be held accountable as your servant. And that kind of faith is not salvific. It will not save you. You are essentially sinning against God, being willing to accept his good things as well as it it pleases you, but not understanding that the very nature of salvation is that now I am God's. There are a lot of people walking around here thinking they're on their way to heaven with their sins forgiven because they have this kind of faith, like the mixed multitude of Israel that came out of Egypt, and they believe in all the good things of God, but they have not given themselves to God. And so, if any of these good things waver or become old hat, they start to complain. If there's ever any accountability, I'm out of here. I'll appreciate I'll, I'll listen to your sermons online because I just can't handle the accountability within your church. I want the good stuff, but no accountability. And that's the rest. So you have the one accord group getting taught. Miracles and stuff were happening out of this core. No doubt. They were being taught, though. They were in prayer. They were in serious worship. They were in a giving mode that embarrasses us. We think we've got 10% in the plate. Woohoo! How about all? They were in real worship, which included real accountability before God and each other. They were the real deal. Then there were that, this, this fringe, this, this, outlying of the camp of God. And they're full of complainers. They're full of 
I should call them unbelievers, but we would call them believers because they believe in the power of God, they believe in the good things of God, but they don't believe that they are gods, that he can command them as he wills, that they are there to serve him, that they are his children. He is the father. He has authority over me. I surrender, we sang that song for a reason, I surrender all to him. They are not that kind of believer. And yet that is the kind of believer that has eternal life. The others still are in jeopardy of God's wrath, correct? The mixed multitude were slain. Many of them, the mightiest of them, it says, some of the most powerful of them, just did not control their own fleshly cravings. They had to get that meat in there before it got prepared properly. And God, before they can even get it down their throat, breaks out against them in his wrath. We are producing a generation that is more like the mixed multitude than like the one accord group. Because we have denigrated belief to believing the good things of God. Instead of, I surrender all. When we have evacuated salvation of full surrender, we have lost salvation. And so when Luke describes the rest, I'm not going to say the rest of the people, the rest of the religious leaders. I'm talking about the rest of those who claimed to be believers, but they didn't want to join. And then the people out there, the populace, it says there in verse 13, esteemed them. Again, I, I have to conclude that goes back to the one accord group. They esteemed them highly. They thought very well of them. They're just good people, but they're not even really close to wanting to be participate in the good things of God. They just like to watch it all happen. It doesn't have to happen to me. I think it's great. That's working for you, and uh, that's super. And I, you know, I see your work ethic. I see that you guys are honest. You, you have honest scales. You're good businessmen. You're nice neighbors. You, uh, you know, help feed my critters when they're where I'm on vacation, things like that. Um, we esteem you highly, but we're not really interested in any of what you're teaching. Let me share with you that only one group in this description is going to heaven. And it's the one accord group. Those who surrender all. Who understand that to trust in Christ is to trust in Him alone. Not just for some benefits. And by the way, it, it, it's pretty puny, the benefits people really want from God compared to what He really wants to give them. <laughs> I can walk, the sick are healed, lame are walking. People are getting brought in from the suburbs being brought in to Jerusalem to be healed and have their unclean spirits cast out. 
Um, and God offers so much more than that. Jesus himself says, you believe because I did this. That's not enough. That kind of belief really isn't saving belief. And so let's be real careful in communicating what we mean by believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just the historical facets that they really happened, that he really was born a virgin, that he that he was died on a cross, that he rose again. Um, I'm pretty sure the mixed multitude believed everything that happened in Egypt. They believed the cross in the Red Sea, and they believed they actually heard the voice of God because they did at Mount Sinai. They really did hear it. They really did eat the manna. But they didn't believe and trust in, place themselves, surrender themselves into God's salvation. And for that, the wrath of God was reserved for them and was poured out on them. And we need to distinguish that. That there's a difference between belief, the factual information, a belief in experiential information. There's a distinction between that kind of believing. And usually when people around us talk about, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, I, I believe, they're talking about that kind of believing. And Jesus, remember, says, you know, well, the demons believe that stuff too. Don't they? They believe that kind of information. And they're afraid of it. They're fearful. And we find some fearfulness here among these people. I, I believe in the power, but I'm a little afraid. And that's not fear of referent, of coming in and, and, and uh, uh, bowing before God, but it's, um, I'm not going to get too close to this. Because it might require too much of me. That kind of belief, we must somehow communicate to people is not what gets them to heaven. It is a I surrender all to Christ. That I am in one accord. In Sunday school, um, in the review, we are at one with God. Atonement. We are at one with God. That His purposes, His plans... His desires are mine. And this is what it means to trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. Not just to, I want my sins gone, I want to get out of jail free card. But rather, I recognize that I am crucified with Christ and it is no longer I that live, but Christ liveth in me and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live to Him. By faith in the Son of God. This is salvific believing. And anyone who doesn't believe that are the rest or the people. They are not in one accord with God. Now I'm convinced that among the multitude who were added to the Lord, men and women in verse 14 were some of the people and some of the rest. God can keep working in hearts and you can move from being the rest to being the one accords. You can move from being the people to being the one accords. That's the offer of God. That's the invitation that He 
gives out is, is come into accord with me. Be at one with me because of the work of Christ. Surrender your all and you'll be my child and inherit my kingdom. That's the offer. And the investigation that we need to be at in our lives, like the whole mixed multitude coming out of Israel, um, like the early church had, is am I part of the one accord? Am I part of the rest? Or am I part of the people? I think church is great for you. For them. For my daughter. For my kids. We have a whole bunch of kids that are going to come to VBS in two weeks. And their parents are going to esteem us highly. Religion is really good for my kids. As long as they don't surrender all to your God, I should say. Because you send a child home surrendered to God, there's going to be friction in that home really quick. Until the parents surrender to God. calling of God is that the church from very early on was a mixed multitude. Don't consider that because you believe something about God, His existence, His power, His authority, that that is equivalent with salvation. There were the ones who were all with one accord. Serving, growing, being nurtured as the children of God. There were the rest who wouldn't join them, though they benefited from them directly. And there there was the people who kept so much distance. They esteemed it, and they thought that was, I'm not going to get in your way, I think it's great for you. Great, good influence, you're a good influence on my family. We like having... And we've seen it. We like having your kids at our house because they're nice kids. No, they're surrendered kids. Don't just esteem them. Join them. Join them. Not join the local church. Join the body of Christ by faith, believing. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you. You are so good. psalmist rightly declared that you had compassion even on the mixed multitude to provide and provide and then even when they complain you provide more. Lord, it really isn't more stuff we need. It's not more entertainment we need. It's not more of this flesh that we need. In fact, it's less. And so Lord, give us insight even as the early church dealt with Those who simply came for the handouts and didn't want the accountability, didn't want to surrender. Lord, help us to be guarded from that. To where that spirit is within us, Lord, uh, we pray you might move us from that weak, beggarly faith to a true faith in you today. We might truly surrender all. We might truly speak to you and say, take my life. I entrust you with it all. Let it be set apart for you. 
Lord, we want that kind of faith in our lives. Where it's lacking, we pray that we might direct it now to you. Lord, we have all encountered people who respect our walk. Lord, we pray that we might invite them to join. That some might, men and women, to be added not to us, but to the Lord. And Lord, help us to be careful among those that we have relationship with to be able to distinguish between the belief in God and His power and the surrender to a Savior. We might truly continue to minister Your Word to these who are close to Your kingdom and yet could easily miss for all eternity. We pray that you might be pleased to work among your faithful here, that we might truly be of one accord. Because we have been truly added to the Lord and are led by your Spirit to your glory. Christ Jesus' name, amen.